open it to the 20th chapter. This evening, we will begin this 20th chapter, and it's, we know this is this wonderful vision that the Apostle John received when he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. There have been 19 centuries that have elapsed since this happened, and these scriptures have been the hope of Christians in every age. Uh, the story really never gets old. The book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the unveiling of Christ when he comes back to begin a kingdom upon this earth and when he, which, in which he will rule in perfect righteousness. And not only does righteousness reign, but the fruits of righteousness will be over this entire world, abundant over the entire earth. Disease and hunger uh, will be nothing but a memory. Sin is going to be restricted. And then finally, sin will be done away with. And then when the kingdom is finally consummated, death is over. There, there will be no more death. Now, this happens... Uh, This is what happens when righteousness overcomes sin. As we know, sin started when Satan rebelled against the Lord, and then man followed suit, Adam followed suit, and he fell in the Garden of Eden, and that sin brought upon the world terrible consequences. God put a curse upon this earth, and we've been living under that curse nearly since the beginning of creation. But when righteousness reigns, that curse is going to be lifted, and then the earth will be restored to what it was before man fell. And that's what I have referred to in the past, what we talked about at Christmas time, as being paradise regained. Uh, Paradise was lost when Adam fell. Uh, The Garden of Eden finally succumbed to uh, thorns and thistles. Man was thrown out of the garden, out of that perfect paradise. But God intended from the very moment that the curse was imposed that he would restore the earth again. The curse would be lifted. What man lost in uh, the fall would be restored in a much more magnificent form than it was in before. And so when God pronounced that curse, he also gave Adam the proto-evangelium. And the proto-evangelium is the salvation that would come to the world through Christ. When God said that the serpent's head would be crushed, that was talking about Christ. And Christ is coming to destroy Satan forever. And the first part of chapter 20, the narrative tells us that at the end of this present age, God is going to bind Satan for 1,000 years. And that is the beginning of his kingdom upon the earth. And that uh, the kingdom is defined there by that period of time, by that thousand years. And that really only relates to the amount of time that Satan is going to be incarcerated. God's kingdom is going to last forever. It doesn't last for just a thousand years. Uh, The form, the shape of the kingdom is going to change when God creates a new heaven and new earth. But when he comes to this earth to establish that kingdom, it will be an everlasting kingdom. And the only reason why we have this 1,000-year period that's referred to is because that is the amount of time that Satan is going to be bound. So that figure of 1,000 years is very important to the interpretation of Revelation. In fact, the entire Bible, uh, what uh, scholars do with the interpretation of nearly the entire Bible is based upon somewhat this understanding of what that 1,000 years mean. And the different schemes of interpretation are based upon that. And the question is, is it real? Is this a literal time period that the Bible is talking about? Or, or, and is there actually going to be a physical kingdom of Christ upon this earth? And if so, when does it get here? And that's where we're going to spend our time tonight. Now, you'll notice here that 
Our reading doesn't begin with the first verse of chapter 20. Uh, The first three verses refer to the binding of Satan for the 1,000 years, and we're going to come back to those verses later and talk about that specifically. Tonight I want us to start with the fourth verse, and this is just to give you some Bible verses that mention that 1,000-year period. And then after we read those verses, we're going to talk about interpretation of Scripture. And I'll explain what I mean in just a moment. So if you look in Revelation 20, verse number 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years." But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now my subject this evening is the reality of the millennium. And I I hope that you'll bear with me just a little bit this evening because this is not the normal way that I preach. And what we're going to talk about tonight is going to be a little bit different in the way that we usually do. And we're not going to talk about the millennium per se, not not what's going to happen in the millennium. Uh, We'll come to that a little bit later and we'll speak on that subject. But tonight I just want to talk to you about how people differ on their interpretations of the millennium. Now, millennium is not a word that we use every day, and so if you'll bear with me for just a moment, there there might be someone here that really doesn't understand what we mean when we say millennium. Well, it's really just a, it comes from a Latin word that means 1,000 years. Now, those of you that are familiar with Roman numerals, you know that the letter M, capital letter M, is meal, and that stands for a thousand in Latin. And you combine that with the, another uh, Latin word for year, and we come up with millennium, and that means a thousand years. Now, obviously, the term comes from 1,000, as it's stated here, six times in verses 2 through 7. And as I said, that 1,000 years are very important to the interpretation of Revelation and, in fact, to the rest of the Bible. And this chapter is really one of the most important chapters that we find in all of Scripture because it's in this place that we find many Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at some of those prophecies, uh, you'll find that it talks about the millennial kingdom. Now, I'm going to give you just two of them. There are, there are many that we find in the, in, in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you, give you one passage from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah, and they talk about the millennial kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2, verse number 1 says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
That's speaking of the millennial kingdom. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And perhaps a a passage that you're more familiar with would be the longer passage in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read that tonight, but that's the passage that uh, speaks of the wolf that dwells with the lamb, the leopard that lies down with the goat, the, the lion that eats uh, with the with the calf, and it says that a little child shall lead them. And that scripture tells us that over all of the earth during the millennial period, there's going to be perfect peace between man and animal so that neither has a fear of the other. Now, the fulfillment of those prophecies, we believe, are found right here in Revelation chapter 20 in that 1,000-year period. But that's not to say that all people believe that. Because by far, the majority of people in the world do not believe that there's actually going to be a physical millennial kingdom, a physical 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. So the question that we have then, and this is what I want to talk about tonight, is this a real defined period of time? Will there be a physical kingdom of Christ upon the earth? So we're going to begin with this, and that, and that is that there is common ground between all of us. And even, even though we disagree on whether there is actually a real physical kingdom of God that's coming to the earth, we do have some areas of agreement. And our area of agreement is on the spiritual kingdom. We do believe, all of us do believe, that there is a spiritual kingdom. And there's always been a spiritual kingdom. We can go back to the Garden of Eden, and there we'll find a spiritual kingdom. And that's the kingdom where God rules in the hearts of his people. Now, immediately upon Adam's sin... He died spiritually, and so he was no longer in the kingdom of God. And if you want a little piece of trivia tonight, you might uh, make a note of this, that when Adam sinned, he was no longer in God's kingdom, so he is actually the only person that was in God's kingdom. Adam and Eve are the only people that were in God's kingdom and got out of God's kingdom. Everybody since then, since Adam, starts out not in the kingdom of God, but you have to get into the kingdom of God. And then after you get into the kingdom of God, you won't, you can't, you will never leave the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of darkness then was established upon the earth when Adam sinned. And since that time, every person that's been born into the world is born into that evil kingdom where Satan rules. God has allowed Satan in one sense to have rule over this world. He has a kingdom here. And uh, God's kingdom is not here in the physical sense. So we agree on this. There is a spiritual kingdom of God. God has that spiritual kingdom, but the problem is there aren't any natural born citizens that are in the spiritual kingdom. To enter into it, you have to be born again. And the basis for uh, allowing a person to come into the kingdom of God is the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. So Adam wasn't in the kingdom when he sinned, but what God did was to make a provision so that Adam could get back into that spiritual kingdom. In Genesis chapter 3:21, the scripture says, "Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them." 
That verse right there is the prototype that we have in the Old Testament for sacrifice. When God killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve, that was a picture of Christ's sacrifice and that God would take the Christ, uh, the, the uh, sacrifice of Christ and he would cover our sins with that sacrifice so that we don't stand naked in our sins before God any longer. So when you put your faith in that sacrifice, you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So God regenerates man. He grants him repentance to come into the kingdom of God. He does that by faith. And so when we're born again, as Jesus says in John 3, verse 3, we can see the kingdom of God. And seeing is that faith that's given by God, so that in John 3, 5, Jesus says that we can enter into the kingdom of God. So, by being born again, we enter into God's spiritual kingdom. Now, going back to Adam, there have always been people that are in God's spiritual kingdom. Adam got back into the kingdom when God made that sacrifice, when he slew the animals and made that prototype. Then after him, Abel was in the kingdom, a spiritual kingdom of God. And every single person that believed down through the Old Testament uh, came into the kingdom of God because of that belief. Now, again, nobody ever got there by natural birth. They get into the kingdom by supernatural birth, being born again of the Spirit of God. And that's very important for every person in the room tonight because no matter how good that we think that we are, there is nobody that is a child of God, and there is nobody who is a citizen of God's kingdom until they've been born again. Now, it's also important for us to understand that there is a difference between the church of God and the kingdom of God. The church and the kingdom are not the same thing. The church is a subset of the kingdom of God, but it's not equal to the kingdom of God. There are people that are in the kingdom of God that are not in the church of God. And I know that there are people, many people disagree with us on that point, and uh, they believe that the church and the kingdom are the same thing. We don't believe that's true. If it was, then we would have a church in the Old Testament. But we don't have a church in the Old Testament. The church is uh, peculiarly a New Testament institution. And people that are born again come into the kingdom of God, but they're not yet in the church of God until they become a part of God's church. So, again, not everybody agrees on that point, but what we do agree on, what we do agree on, no matter where you come from on this millennial position, we do agree that God does have a spiritual kingdom. Now, the problem is the spiritual kingdom is not what's in view in Revelation chapter 20. And that's where things start to get frenzied and harried and you have this schism of interpretation because there are people who want to see a spiritual kingdom all of the time. And so they believe the spiritual kingdom is what it's talking about in Revelation 20. And they never want to admit that there is actually a literal kingdom, physical kingdom of God that's coming upon the earth. Now there's where we're going to spend our time tonight. What about the earth's kingdom? Is, what about this kingdom the Bible talks about, the earth's kingdom? Well, we believe that there is more than a spiritual kingdom. There's coming a time when Christ is going to reestablish a physical kingdom of God upon the earth. And this is when all of those Old Testament passages like those that I read just a moment ago are going to be fulfilled. And the reason that we believe that is because that is the natural reading of the Scripture. And the Old Testament Scriptures that we've read lead us to believe that that's the case. The chronology of Revelation presents us with that view. And in order to circumvent that, you have to get really inventive with the Scripture. 
So the reality of the millennium is the key to this. The interpretation of the millennium is the key to understanding what's right and wrong about Revelation or what, what's the truth of Revelation. It all depends upon this 1,000 years, and that's how you get the different views. So here's what we're going to talk about next, millennial interpretations. Millennial interpretations, and there are basically three different views, and I'll start with the right one. There, there are... Three basic interpretations of the millennium with some variations on those, and they all have to do with the timing of Christ's return to the earth. Now, as you know, we've, we've just come out of that long study in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, it's the revelation of Christ when he comes back to the earth, and when does his kingdom begin in relation to Christ's coming? And I think that all of you here, you would probably say, well, that ought to be obvious to us. Chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. And so I would think that the Bible is teaching us that Christ is coming to this earth before the millennium. That's what you call the premillennial view. Basically, that's what it's all about, that Christ comes back to this earth before the kingdom begins. So that's the millennium that we're talking about. Uh, This earth is going to end in a period of judgment called the tribulation. There is going to be a real man, a real figure, a person called the Antichrist who is going to rule during seven years of time called the tribulation. And Christ comes back to end the Antichrist rule. He does that at the battle of Armageddon. Then when men are subdued and when Satan is bound, Christ begins his kingdom. Everything that we've studied so far is prior to chapter 20. It's all before the millennium. So it's premillennial. Now, the premillennial view is based upon a natural reading of Scripture. It's based upon a literal reading. Now, I'm going to talk to you in just a few minutes about uh, what's truly meant by the word literal, but we believe that the Bible is to be taken literally. And whenever the Bible gives us a symbol of something, it's going to tell us that it's a symbol. It's going to be obvious to us that it's a symbol. So when we read the Old Testament and we see that a kingdom has been promised to Israel, And God says that this is an everlasting kingdom and that David's throne is established and there will be a golden age for Israel, that streams will run in the desert, that wolves will lie down with lambs and that leopards will lie down with the goats and lions will eat straw like the ox and the little child shall lead them. When the Bible says that that the kingdom will really last, that Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years, that Christ is going to rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem and that nations will come and bow down before him, and he will rule in perfect justice and equity. When the Bible says that, folks, we believe it. We believe that that's actually what the Bible means. It means what it says when it says all of those things. That's based upon a literal reading of Scripture. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament for just a minute, and we're going to look at the opposite of the promises that are made to Israel. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and this is one of the dozens of places in the Old Testament that we could go and we could learn about what God says would happen to Israel if they would obey him and what happens if they disobey him. And so if you'll look in Deuteronomy chapter 28, this is uh, Moses speaking to the people before they're ready to go into the promised land. 
And in verse number one, it says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all of these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Now, after that comes 12 more verses where... It lists some of the wonderful benefits that Israel would have if they obeyed God. God says that if you obey me, you'll always safely live in Canaan. But if you go down to verses, verse 15 and the, one, uh, the ones that are following that, you find 53 verses of curses on Israel for disobedience. Now, we always do this. We always take the 53 verses as being literal. We don't have any trouble with that because we can read the Old Testament and we see those verses were fulfilled. We see Israel disobeying God and Israel being driven out of the land, taken into captivity. And now for 2,500 years, Israel has no one sitting on the throne of David. We see the literal fulfillment of all the curses that God said he would place upon Israel. But we also know that there are times intervening here that Israel did obey God. And God came back to the people once again. And he reiterated the promises that he made that there would be an everlasting kingdom. If they would return, if they would obey him, then the kingdom would come again. So why should we believe that all of the curses on Israel are true? And all those curses did happen. Why should we believe that but we don't believe that all the blessings that God promised are equally true. Why is one side literal and the other's non-existence? Why would we expect that all the promises would be fulfilled in the church and not to Israel? Why does Israel get all of God's curses, but Israel gets none of God's blessing? Now, you see, that's the trouble that you have with the rejection of the literal premillennial view. Because all the other views give all the curses to Israel but give all the blessings spiritually to the church. That doesn't make sense that we take one side literally and one side figuratively. So in the premillennial view, we understand that the world is headed for this great period of tribulation, that times are going to get worse and worse and worse, and it'll finally culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ again. When he will come and he'll end the rule of the Antichrist, he'll stop that political reign and the uh, religious systems that are upon the earth at that time, and he'll do that in one final cataclysmic blow. That's the battle of Armageddon. And then he appears, as the Bible shows us there in chapter 19, in lightning quickness, and he establishes the kingdom upon the earth. The Bible shows us that things really have to get bad before that happens. That's important. Remember that. Things have to get really bad before it can happen. Well, a second idea of the millennium is what's called the post-millennial view. Post means after the millennium. In other words, the millennium will be here, and then Christ will come to the earth. Christ's coming is after the millennium. And some of them believe that it's a literal period of time, that it will be a thousand years. Some believe that the thousand years uh, stands for an indefinite period of time. But basically, the belief is this, that the world gets better, that everything gets better, that, that Christ comes after this period of prosperity beyond the earth, a good time that's going to result in Christ's return. So that view says that Christ does not bring in the kingdom, but we are the ones that bring in the kingdom. 
In other words, the church is going to grow, it's going to prosper, it's going to go throughout all the world. Eventually, the vast majority of the people in the world will be saved until the church finally takes over the world. And in the different views of the millennium, that's the one that's most recent. Now, it's interesting that when you read after people that are explaining these different views, there are some people that skip over the post-millennial view altogether. They don't even mention it because there's not a shred of evidence for it in the Bible. You, you can't go any place in the Bible to prove that view. But nevertheless, there have been some very, very big names in history that have believed this. For instance, in the last part of the 19th century, the Princeton theologians, and maybe you don't know who I'm talking about there, but look it up sometime. I won't give you all the names of those guys, but uh, they were very, very good men. But the Princeton theologians, this was back when Princeton was a theological seminary. They were still teaching some truth there. They believed this. But the view kind of fell out of disfavor when things didn't start getting better. Things kept getting worse all of the time. There were two world wars. In the last world war, there were 60 million people that died. And there are many people who believe that there is a third world war coming, that the world is going to be destroyed in some thermonuclear explosion. So people began to think that can't possibly be the view. And so the post-millennial view fell out of favor. And only lately has it actually been revived. And now there are some people who insist that the world is going to get better, that the gospel will penetrate every part of the globe, and many people will be saved. And when they do, Christ will return. Now, the problem with that view is that you have to spiritualize much of Revelation to make that happen. In fact, you can just leave Revelation out of the picture, just leave it alone, because you can't come up with any kind of chronology to support that. And then I might also mention that some people who claim to be premillennial actually fall into the postmillennial view. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, this is when you have so many churches and so many people that preach politics from the pulpit. And so what they believe is that what the American people really need to do is we need to take over the government. We need to get all Christians in the Congress. We need to take over the presidency. We need to take over the Supreme Court. And when we're able to do that, then we're well on our way to establishing the kingdom of God upon the earth. And that is actually just a premillennialist who's millennialist who's fallen into that postmillenary view. And what they really don't understand is that God does not need human government to make his kingdom happen. We're never supposed to try to Christianize the American government per se. That's not what God has called us to do. The gospel was never intended to be mixed with the secular government. Now, what's intended is that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be preached and then people would become Christians and then they would become a part of the government that rules us. So it's the job, it's the responsibility of God's preachers and God's churches to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and not to stand in pulpits and preach somebody's political party. That's not what God has called us to do from here. So the moral majority and, the, and uh, all of that stuff, I, I think they went terribly wrong. When what they tried to do was try to Christianize something, it's never going to be Christianized. You can't change the secular government for that. That's not its purpose, and God doesn't intend for it to be his purpose. Now, there's another view, and this is the one, actually, that most people believe. It has a longer history uh, it's held by most of those who are Reformed and by Roman Catholics as well, and that's called the amillennial view. 
Now, this is where you take millennial and you put an A in front of it, and that means simply there is no millennium. There is no literal kingdom. All of this stuff that you read in Scripture about Israel being restored, about Christ sitting upon David's throne, about lions and lambs, all of that's just figurative speech. And basically, what you see right now is all that you get. What we have right now is all there's going to be. And sometime, someday, Christ will return, and that's it. So, there's no literal thousand-year kingdom of God upon the earth. So, these people are just waiting for Christ to come back. Things are not going to get measurably better. Things are not going to get measurably worse. They just stay the same, and then Christ comes, and it's all over. That's the end of it. So, what happens then? Remember what I told you to keep in your minds? What happens then with all of the promises that are made in the Old Testament to Israel? Well, the Amils believe that all of it's happening right now. And that's because the kingdom of God is in you. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's the church. That's what's in view. And so all believers are now receiving all of the promises that have been promised to Israel. In historical terms, this would have been the view of the Puritans. Now, the Puritans were a really a great bunch of guys. I mean, they were rock solid on their, on their views of God and about Christ and about the Holy Spirit. We draw a, a great deal of very, very good theology from the Puritans. And we do that because they had such a high view of God. They believe in glorifying God. We follow them and their insistence that God is always primary, that God is central and not man. But when it comes to their ecclesiology, that means their doctrine of the church. And when it comes to their eschatology, that means the doctrine of end times, they're not really very good. And a good question that we would ask is why? Why are they so good on everything else, but they're so bad on this? Well, I think one of the reasons is because of where the Puritans concentrated their debate. Now, this was at a time when the Reformation was happening. Uh, they were very, very strongly opposed to Catholicism, and they were teaching that man is justified by faith alone, and that became the central issue of the Reformation. So they were dealing by just, with justification by faith, and they were attacking the low view of God that's held by Arminians and by, Pelagianist, uh, by Pelagianism. So rather than argue about the issue of eschatology, they really didn't develop that. So when you talk about their theology, doctrine of God, when you talk about their Christology, doctrine of Christ, when you talk about their soteriology, doctrine of salvation, about their pneumatology, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, then you find that they're very good. But their ecclesiology and their eschatology is not very good. So what you have then is that the doctrine of eschatology in church history, the doctrine of end times, is what you'd call a late bloomer. It's a late bloomer. Paul and Peter gave us great eschatology. John gave us great eschatology. But that subject is not really dealt with very much until the last couple hundred years of church history. And so it took this long period of time until this premillenary idea came back to the forefront again until it was realized that this is what was taught by Jesus and the apostles. And now that doctrine has begun to, has begun to increase over the past couple of hundred years. You might remember that at one time when we started the book of Revelation, I told you that Martin Luther... What the great reformer, Martin Luther, for a long, long time did not even believe that the book of Revelation was canonical. 
That means he didn't believe that it was actually a part of Scripture. He only came to that realization later. But still, he didn't understand these doctrines that we're talking about tonight. Now, folks, there's a great problem with amillenary and postmillenary doctrine. It spiritualizes the Bible when it should be literalizing it. And when you do that, you're going to end up with all sorts of errors. Strange things are going to fly out because you're going to have all these different interpretations and you don't have a real measuring rod to gauge anything by. All that you have is opinion. And so especially in the Amil view, if you do some reading on this subject, and remember what I'm telling you, this is where most people stand. Most of them have an Amil view. But when you start to study Revelation, you are going to find hundreds of interpretations about what all these symbols in Revelation mean. And that's the problem with a spiritual interpretation, without a literal interpretation. It opens everything up. So everybody has their own opinion. There's all kinds of conjecture about it. Now, the pre-mill view is the one that's most consistent because it has a literal interpretation. It fits Old Testament prophecies perfectly. And although we might have some differences between us who believe in the pre-mill view, that the overall scheme of the interpretation is the most consistent of all of them. So here you should be able to see now, well, the problem here is interpretation. How do you, are you supposed to interpret the Bible? That is the problem. Now, we're going to finish up here this evening. Our last point here deals with the hermeneutical limitations. The hermeneutical limitations. Now, don't be scared of that word. Uh, Hermeneutics, hermeneutical, that's just a theological word, and it means interpretation. That's how you interpret the Bible. Your hermeneutical position is how you interpret the Bible. Well, what we believe is that there is a hermeneutical limitation upon how you interpret the Bible. And that is, you have to interpret it in one way. Now, let me give you the two methods that are used to interpret the Bible. The first one is the literal view, and the second one is the allegorical method, the literal method and the allegorical method. Now, the literal method, as you probably guessed, is what I've been defending tonight, that we are to interpret the Bible literally. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't any symbols in the Bible, And it doesn't mean there's never an allegory used in the Bible, but it does mean that you take the language of Scripture in its normal, ordinary, and customary usage. For example, in the New Testament, you'll find the Apostle Paul using Israel as an example to believers. Paul does that in the first part of our 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And we know that when Paul does that, that there is an historical context for it. What he says happened really did happen to Israel. Israel really was in Egypt, and Israel really was delivered from Egypt. They really did go through the Red Sea. They really did get into the wilderness. They really did murmur against God. And so we know that there is a historical context when he uses the allegory. So when Paul warns Christians... And he allegorizes that text to say, well, what that means, that Old Testament scripture is an example for us that we are not to grumble, that we are not to turn to idols, that we are not to tempt Christ, then we know that there's a historical context for that. You don't deny the truth just because it sometimes uses an allegory. Now, with the second method, the allegorical method, or sometimes it's called the spiritual method, There are difficult passages that might not fit into your preconceived notions of your theology. 
And so what you do is you spiritualize the text. You take the text and you deny the context. And if there's something historical about it, then you may ignore that because that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the, is the spiritual meaning that's behind it. That's the primary thing. Now, this is why that you'll always, you hear me all the time talking about using Scripture in its context, that we don't take the Bible and pull it out of its context. And the reason that we don't do that is because we take a literal method of interpretation. But the Amils especially, they like this allegorical method, and what they do is they turn Revelation into cream of wheat. It's watery, it's runny, it's as solid as jello. And all of those are just little allegories that I just gave you. So what does the spiritual method do to Bible interpretation? Well, you'll be happy with this if you're an Amil or you believe in the allegorical method, the spiritual method, because the spiritual method makes everybody a Bible scholar. Because you can make the Bible say anything that you want it to say. It means anything you want it to mean. And so you can... Take the Bible from any conceivable angle that you want to take it. Make up anything about the Bible you want to say. It says what you want it to say. And so with that method, it's the reason why the the Amils never come to agreement on a scriptural principle. And the only reason they do come into agreement is because you get enough people that all say the same thing. And so they agree with each other rather than agreeing with the Bible. Sometimes they hit on the truth. Most of the time they don't. So if you see something in your doctrine that needs a particular interpretation to make it work, you just go find a scripture and you grab it, you twist it any way that you want to, and that's how you come up with its meaning. Now let me take you back to the literal interpretation and why we take the Bible in its natural reading. And it's a very simple principle. If you write me a letter or you ask me to read a book, then I'm going to take what's written at face value. I'm going to interpret what you say and what you mean by the common, obvious sense of the words. And if we don't do that, we could never communicate with each other. If every word that you use has a different meaning than what I have for it, then we're never going to be able to communicate. So if you use a figure of speech, then I'll recognize that because I know your figures of speech have an already recognized meaning to them that's common to everybody. Let me give you an example of that. Suppose that you say to me, I'm warning you, if you smoke a little weed, you're going to fly higher than a kite. Well, I'm not going to interpret that to mean, well, if I go out and smoke dandelions, I'm going to soar in the air 500 feet. I know what you mean by that. That's because we both understand the words in their ordinary meaning. And when they're not in the ordinary meaning, then we understand that a, what a word like weed means. And we understand what being higher than a kite means. So if we're not using the words in their normal sense, we all have a common interpretation of what those words mean. That's what we're talking about when we say interpret the Bible literally. So what this does is that a literal interpretation binds us to a little bitty thing called facts. It binds us to the facts. It binds us to an authoritative standard. And the Bible alone is the standard. The standard's not me, it's not you. The standard is what God says in his words, and we take what he says at face value. And so when we read in Revelation chapter 20 that there is a thousand years, and this scripture that we just read where it says a thousand years we're going to reign with Christ, four thousand years we're going to reign with Christ. 
And when that's repeated six times in seven verses without any indication that it's not a literal period of time, then we believe it is a literal period of time. And when chapter 20 begins and it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years and then after that the king comes or the king comes at Armageddon, we know that that happens and we know that the king comes before the thousand years, then we all know it's premillenary. premillenary. We, we understand that. The, we see the order of things, the chronology right here in Revelation. So what we're doing here is that we're not trying to find cryptic meanings in the Scripture. We're not trying to find a cryptic meaning in the book of Revelation. If we go back to the Old Testament, if we read Revelation and we go back to the Old Testament and we see the prophecies and we go to places in the New Testament like Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus talks about the same things and we go to 2 Thessalonians where Paul talks about the same things and we go elsewhere in the Bible where the same things are discussed, there is how we determine what the scriptures mean. We always take the objective standard. Now, I'm going to end with that tonight. Uh, This might not be your cup of tea. And you say, what a strange sermon to preach. But I thought that it's important that we understand why do we interpret the Bible like we do. A literal interpretation of scripture is extremely important for us to understand what God means and what John meant when he wrote the book of Revelation. And it helps us to understand what that thousand years is, what that period's all about. So we'll take a literal view of Scripture. We believe what God says just as he says it. That's how we get our understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to be together tonight. And although the message has been somewhat different from what we would usually do, We think it's important, Lord, that we instruct the people of God that we just don't stand up here and and make opinions and make up things about the book of Revelation or any other part of the Scripture, but we take the Bible and we believe it just as you've said it. When you said that you created the world in six days, we believe that happened. And when you said that there was a flood, we believe that happened. And all of these things, the great miracles of the Bible, things that Jesus did, we believe they all happened And we do believe that you're coming to reign upon this earth for a thousand years. It will happen. And we look forward to your kingdom. Bless your people tonight, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.